1: That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
0: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST code ACAST.
1: What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up?
0: To understand the economy, You have to understand human nature.
1: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing there? It is David. It's August. It's kind of hard to believe we're at the start of August. Just by the way, August is a very tricky month in financial markets. So just watch this. Two of the last really massive crises in financial markets began in August. The emerging market crisis of 1998, which ended up engulfing the entire Asian economy, then the Russian economy, then massive default, then a thing called LTCM, which was allegedly a foolproof fund run, not by one, but two Nobel Prize winners for economics, blew up as a result of things that happened in August 1998. And then August 2007, far away in the sub- prime underbelly in Arizona, a couple of funds run by an outfit called Bear Stearns, one of America's significant, what they call bulge bracket banks, one of their funds started to show signs of distress in August 2007. And we know by March 2008, that bank Bear Stearns was gone, Lehman was gone six months later, and the world was in a massive financial crisis by August, September 2008. So August is a strange month. Don't want to be downer. Don't want to start freaking you out. But just be aware (laughs) that financial crises and the dog days of summer at the end of August tend to come together. Of course, who is chuckling over here as I give my big speeches, my friend, Mr. Davis, how are you doing, my man? Very
1: good. It's also your birthday in August. It is.
0: <laughs> it's a massive correlation between crisis, turbulence, and the fact that uh, us Leos come into the world yeah. full of nonsense. This is your midlife crisis, this is, of course. This is, this, is, this is my midlife emerging market crisis. This is my massive midlife crisis. What's the crack, son? Yeah, it's all good.
1: Although... Woke up this morning to the sad news of passing a John Hume, a colossal in Irish politics.
0: Yeah, I think by far and away the most impressive political leader we've had in this country in, in 100 years. Yeah. I think there's no doubt of yeah. this. How uh, many
1: people would disagree with that?
0: You know, what John Hume achieved in the darkest, darkest days of this island's history. Yeah. And the fact that he kept nationalist Northern Ireland and therefore Nationalist Ireland... Mm. on some sort of straight and narrow. And the fact that he dealt with such courage and bravery with what was in a really nasty, nasty sectarian state. He was incredibly tenacious
1: and determined. And his whole vision of, you know, getting away from that orange or green, nationalist or unionist kind of thing, and trying to find a, a real workable alternative. Yeah, um, uh, yeah,
0: it is amazing. And he did two things that I think were really significant. He, he Europeanized the Irish problem. He was a big believer in the European Union. And had yeah. the European Union gave people from Northern Ireland an identity which he didn't really have to. You could be European. And European diluted the sort of harshness of Irish and Britishness. Mm. And it gave this European angle. And then I think, of course, in the United States, he operated behind the scenes extraordinarily
1: absolutely there's
0: an amazing i don't
1: know if you've seen it there's an absolutely incredible documentary called in the name of peace john hume in america written and directed by a guy called morris fitzpatrick i haven't Uh, seen it i haven't seen it you have if you want to know anything about john hume you got to see this i'm sure they'll be showing it again in in life it's called john
0: hume in america
1: it's called in the name of peace john hume in america and it's terrific. And and the big thing about that was, it tells the story of how he had the vision and the foresight to see if we're going to change things politically in Northern Ireland, we need to get outside help, essentially. And he yeah. went to America. He told a story of Ireland and got the political weight of American politicians both Democrat and and Republican. They eventually
0: called them the four horsemen of the apocalypse, (laughs) which was the Democrat and Republican four big beasts that together with Clinton drove the Good Friday Agreement.
2: Yeah. There's no doubt of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
0: kind of bullied the Brits also into realising that they had to do a deal. Yeah. And uh, when I say bullied, just encouraged Britain to say, hold on a second, this is an international conflict and this can only be solved by an international treaty. Yeah. You know, so it is. But what I want to talk to you about is another part of John Hume's legacy that I think people don't really give him enough credit for, and that is the establishment of the credit unions in Ireland. Oh, yeah. John Hume established the first credit union in Ireland called the Derry Credit Union in 1960. Okay. Now, credit unions subsequently, North and South, have been the main financer, the main source of credit of poor people who couldn't get bank accounts because they weren't respectable enough, And in the old days, the banking system was very much part of the power struggle and the power system of the country, and only the decency uh, could get a loan, yeah. right? And Hume understood that credit unions, that access to credit and finance was part of the whole civil rights movement. It was as important as access to education. Right. And there's a beautiful story about the undertones, right? Oh, yeah. Logan story about the undertones, <laughs> the role of John Hume in the undertones. There's right. a great book by Mickey Bradley, who was the bass player of the undertones yes. about yep. the yep. history of the undertones. So I'm taking you back to June the 15th, 1978. Oh, oh I was 12. imagine that. Imagine that we were both 12, right? Now, the scene is the battle of the bands in Belfast organized by Terry Hooley, the yeah. legendary head yeah. of Good Vibrations Records. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah, yeah. The undertones are a dairy band. Not only are there two brothers, but Billy Doherty and Fergal Sharkey are cousins. Like, this is how close the bands right. are, right? Yeah. So they're all from the same air, right? neck of the woods, right? Mickey Bradley is the bass guitarist. SLF, Stiffical Fingers, were the band to... Beat, they were, they were the band of the North, right? Yeah, they'd
1: they, set the bar. they just released
0: Suspect Device. Yeah. They had their own record label. How radical was that? They were proper punks, right? And they had an option for a deal with Rough Trade Records. Yeah. Rough Trade Records being Rough Trade Records. And, of course, the undertones, being from Derry, as Bradley said, they didn't really look to Belfast. They always looked to Dublin for right. their inspiration. Yeah, yeah. Belfast was a bit too different for them etc. Dublin was their Neck of the Woods. But they knew they had to make it in Belfast and they knew that Stiff Little Fingers were the band that they had to emulate. So they grudgingly went to see Stiff Little Fingers in Kelly's in (laughs) Portrush, which is a legendary nightclub in the north. It is a legendary nightclub in the northwest. You might not have heard of it. I haven't, I'm afraid. It's a a (laughs) kick-ass happening place. Stonking place. Kelly's, right? And so Bradley tells the story. But they managed to blag their way on to the bill Right. Now, the bill. of the bill are the Outcasts. The Outcasts were a skinhead band from Belfast that I remember seeing as the backup band I to the that. Clash and the SFX. Right. The okay. This is when I was in my Black Rock College blazer. Yes, of course. The Clash. <laughs> <yeah. laughs> <laughs> exactly. Who punk? You know. yeah, anyway, you got right. Wedged on the way out. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard, you know, getting forty shades kicked out of the on the way out. But the story is beautiful because it links John Hume. Bradley said they blagged their way onto the the bill they were in Derry. Mm. the problem is billy doherty the drummer had no drums right he had no drums it's a, a, a bit of a problem so how are they going to get the, the drums and then and, and of course the band were, were poor yeah and bradley had become a member of the credit union when he was a kid because his parents were members of the credit union right, right? Yeah, yeah so it's save a little bit save a little bit bradley goes down to the credit union and because his whole family were members of the credit union the credit union guy in the dairy credit union, the manager gives Mickey Bradley, and he says in the book, 400 quid rolled up in tenors, which he stuffed down the front of his Wrangler jeans. And as he quotes, in case there would be highwaymen on the bog site so that might meet him on the way home, right? So what you see is the undertones end up going to Belfast as a result of the loan they get from the dairy credit union, which they would not have got right. had John Hume yeah. not set it up. And the rest is history. They record teenage kicks. John Peel picks it up, yeah, and away yeah. they go. But well, let me come back to the credit that's union. That's fantastic it's a great story. story, isn't it? Yeah, right? that's so this, this is the stuff you get in this podcast. <laughs> but let's come back to the credit union. That is exactly why Hume set up the credit union, because Hume understood that one of the great sectarian instruments to be used against the Catholic population was not only in, no access to housing. Or education but to credit right. because credit does an amazing thing john credit allows you to live in the future and i know sometimes this is weird because we always talk about too much credit and spending credit badly but mm. what credit does is it allows you to dream about a possible future it allows you to p- postpone yeah and this is critical because if you can say well maybe next year i might go to college and I can plan for going to college, and I can save money, and these people are going to give me credit. I mean, Bradley Mm. refers to the credit unions as a community bank in Derry for Catholics. It's exactly the same down here. You talk to lots and lots of people from backgrounds where there wasn't much money, and the credit union paid for education yeah. the credit union paid for is all It's like those of stuff. kind of
1: microfinancing systems that I've I've seen at work in in India. You're absolutely right. And they work fantastically well.
0: A really fascinating thing about microfinancing is that there was a guy called Muhammad Yunus who won a Nobel Prize not long after John Hume won the Nobel Prize. Okay. For him setting up a bank called the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh which was a microfinance bank that lent very small amounts of yeah, money to yeah, very yeah. poor women. Yeah. What he understood was one thing, it's quite interesting, that poor people do not default. Rich people default. People like Donald Trump default. <coughs> that's the truth, right? Yeah. If you look at all the great defaulters, they were always rich. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Poor people pay their le- their debts. And the crazy thing about it is because of the class system, people like Donald Trump get very low interest rates when they borrow lots of money. And very poor women in Bangladesh were suffering under very high interest rates from right. moneylenders. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Even though the risk of default is much higher on the rich guy. Look at all the guys who defaulted in Ireland in the. Yeah. In the, yeah uh, absolutely. Yeah. They were yeah. all rich guys. Yeah. Right. Poor guys don't default. Poor people don't default. But what John Hume understood, and it's critical, and I, The Understones is a lovely story of that, is that if you give poor people access to small amounts of credit, 100 quid, 200 quid, 300 quid, it changes the way in which they look at the future. You know, I've always thought that poverty is really about time horizons. Yes, yeah. That the problem with poor people is they can't see beyond tomorrow because they have to generate cash today. But if you give that poor person credit for tomorrow, okay, if you say you don't have to pay your university fees today or or whatever you have to, but you can pay it over a 10-year period and we'll give you credit, suddenly the world opens up. So, and I think this is wh- this is how economies change. Economies don't change with some great big bang. They change by step by step, little by little. People buying a drum kit, yeah. you know, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that, that created one of the greatest bands ever come out here. It wouldn't have happened had they not bought the drum kit, yeah. right? People buying a little bit of education, maybe, you know, putting down, changing their house, maybe doing this, doing that. And it's all small because the economy starts from the bottom up, not from the top down. Mm. And when you get that right, and what John Hume understood in the 1950s was that Catholics didn't have access to credit, largely because, it's an unfortunate thing, Protestants ran the banks in Northern Ireland. So they wouldn't give Catholics credit. So the Catholics were depositing their money in the banks, yeah. but that money was disappearing out of the Catholic of community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So John Hume said, look, what we'll do is we'll set up our own bank like a cooperative... Yeah. Now, this goes back a long way. You know, the cooperative movement is part of the Irish national movement. Uh, what do know? you mean? Well, Horace Plunkett. Have you ever heard of Hor- Horace Plunkett? I know the name, yeah. yeah. he set up the cooperative movement in Ireland at the start of the 20th century. Okay. And again, the same sort of idea that if you don't have much resources, if you pool your resources together, you'll get a better outcome. Yeah. That's the idea. So this is part of the whole... So, so Hume is... Before he even becomes the man we know, he's in a long line of people, of human rights activists who understood that banking and credit is a human right. It's part of human rights. And that's, I would say, one of the longest lasting legacies. I mean, there's the Good Friday Agreement and there's all that, but these little small things are are, are fascinating. and. Can you imagine Derry without the the undertones? It's like Derry without Derry City. It's like Derry without a great bar, actually. I should take it. Go on. Actually,
1: I've never been to Derry. There's a bar
0: called the Sandero Bar in Water Street in Derry, right? And it comes from Sandinista. Oh,
1: right. The Sandinistas
0: were Daniel Ortega's revolutionary Nicaraguan communist. Yeah, it was all the Central American. And you walk into that bar, right? I think it's called Sandista or Sandero. People from Derry will... Yeah. <laughs> pick us up in this, right? You walk in and you've got Nicaragua Libra and you've got Fidel Castro and Bola, <laughs> Excellent. Bola, That know? sounds brilliant. Bol- Bolivian revolutionaries and <laughs> la Revolution sempre, all these great slogans. Like it is like going into and Palestinian flags, and it's like going into a revolutionary cell. Right. But it's yeah. a boozer. Yeah. And uh, every time I'm Derry, which is not as often as we should do, we should do a show from Derry. Uh, I've gone in there for a quick scoop or two. And it's a different, because Derry's a political city. Yeah. You know, it's a city defined by civil rights. There are highly, highly attuned political people. And, you know, Hume didn't come from nowhere. He's part of the firmament. Absolutely. And the credit union movement all over Ireland is due to John Hume. He set it all up. And when I hear about John Hume's passing, I think it's, Not just the big things he did, but the small things he did that changed people's lives completely. People like Mickey Bradley, the bass guitarist of the undertones. Well, let's have a quick listen.
1: So Mac, and another big event that happened this week, of course, was Mr. Mac Williams being ranked fifth in the most influential economists in the world. Like ever?
0: Like ever? <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, it came Congratulations. out of the blue. Like, it's great. It came out of the blue. It's uh it's a ranking of the most influential economists in the world. I mean, Paul Krugman was number one, so, you know, that's always good Fair to enough. see. And, yeah. and
1: uh, Stiglitz was number six. Yeah, well, I'm telling you now, <laughs> Joe, you
0: just have to pull your... Pull up. No, but so what it, What it is, is is a ranking about where people go to get their economic sort of basis. It's publications, it's articles, maybe podcasts. Yeah, yeah. All this sort of who, who influences most people. And I, I think it's, it's really flattering to it's come in, to. yeah, it's no, great. it's great. It is good. It is good. And it's, uh, I suppose, John, it's, it's what we're trying to do here. You're trying to use all the mediums, you know, whether it's, it's a blogs or podcasts or articles yeah. or Kilconomics or all these things that, that I've ended up kind of falling into because I couldn't get yeah. a proper job. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't keep down, I couldn't hold down a proper plan job. plan anything. Exactly. There's no plan. <laughs> And again, it's it's really gratifying. So it's great, yeah. Yeah, so, fair so, play to you. I think it's great. Yeah, no, it is good. It is good. It is good. But I was uh, I was down in Roundstone when I got that message. Right. Uh, and of course, you like Roundstone. It's I'm, one of
1: my favourite places in the whole world. I love Roundstone.
0: And of course, I was married there.
1: Yes. <laughs> you, and were? Right?
0: And you happened to give a speech at the wedding. I so did, you as,
1: as far as I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It
0: was one of those weddings. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's really, you know, it was nice. So so we, we went back to the, the little churches, a little church called St. Mary's. That actually leaked. Do you remember? Because it lashed rain, it did there was a hole in the roof. Yeah. It was yeah. a hole in the roof, and it leaked, and the whole altar was all <laughs> rain was lashing in the whole thing. It's coming out the back, but anyway, I was down in Ranstone. And, and interesting, you know, we were talking about John Hume just there, yeah, and the role of credit unions in the liberating of the nationalist mind about the possibilities that you could actually avail of if you could get these small finances. I was also thinking about that in the context of. What happened in and around the Roundstone area, right? About a hundred years ago, maybe one hundred twenty years ago, where huge tracts of land were made available to the Irish tenants from the landlords, again a bit like John Hume through financial innovation,
1: right? You know, as
0: I'd like to say, it was really bonds, not bombs, that generated Ireland's Ireland's freedom, right? Okay. okay. And again, I was... Nice. I like that. Yeah, it is, but it's, it's true because you know, in, in, in history, we never look at the economics. You always think about the big patriot given the speech at the dock yeah. or the big mass movement and the big event, the war, the this, that, and the other, the rise and the revolution. They're all really important things, but underlying these things are movements in economics and finance and yeah. money. The day-to-day stuff. The day-to-day but... stuff. And maybe, John, the day-to-day stuff, the little incremental stuff, makes a much bigger impact on the overall end game than the big events because it's the little things that change people's lives and it's when people's lives change that the world changes. Brilliant. Well, let's get into that. It was, I mean, the Irish summer is hard to love. I mean, it is. Yeah. I was walking there yesterday and there's a lovely walk down the bog road and you're kind of thinking it's kind of comical because you're walking in a biblical deluge. Mm. It's coming down sideways at you. It's like hitting you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you (laughs) think, I'm paying for the pleasure of this spiteful deluge down on top of me. But what intrigued me, John, was walking through, we mentioned it last week in terms of Le Hinch, walking through areas of Kwanamara. Yeah. And that sense of the emptiness and the stillness and the lack of humanity. Mm. And then you think back to history. And you think there was a time when this part of the country was hugely populated. Oh, for sure, yeah. In fact, in the early part of the 19th century, so from, let's say, the Napoleonic Wars up until the famine, the west of Ireland was the fastest growing population of anywhere in Europe. And European population was growing rapidly then. Really? Yeah, and you also think there was an extraordinary displacement of people. So Irish place names... Are very revealing mm. because they tell you things about the landscape and the people that you're not really too sure of. So I was walking on this walk and I was walking through a, a sort of a townland called Kukla, and then I asked one of the locals the other day, and I've been reading a guy called Tim Robinson who's written all these. Not brilliant, the actor. No, he's a he's a he's a cartographer. He oh, just okay. Passed away. Oh, lovely. Beautiful maps of Connemara. Mm. Very interesting. And Kukla means kuiga Ulla from the Irish like the yeah. people of Ulster and these were people okay. who were displaced think about this in the Cromwellian the no, pre-Cromwellian in the plantations of Ulster 1650, 16 around then and those Kuiga Oll were people from Ulster who were displaced who think about it were dispossessed from their lands and then ended up in the most barren Why did they go there?
1: Why did they choose Because
0: them? the hell are conned. Remember right. Cromwell said, yeah. to hell are con- and Kukla is evidence of this because the local people, they arrived, and I imagine they would be all speaking Irish, mm. but they would speak sort of Ulster Irish, more like Donegal Irish. Yeah. Which is quite different to... But no. Uh, I know. I'll, t- I'll tell you all about that in a while. Right? <laughs> it was quite different to Connemara Irish, right? Yeah. And of course, their accents would have been different. They would have used different words. And so their area, and like anything, you would have arrived in with maybe 10 families and you hang out together. And this was Cooiga
1: Right, now okay. known as
0: Kukla. this is where the people from Ulster who were dispossessed ended up around right, Roundstone. Okay, And I was thinking of this, how did it all change? Because I was going back to history. 1903, mm. the Wyndham
1: Land Act, right? Well, actually, hang on. Before you get there, did the place not empty out as a result of the famine first? Absolutely.
0: So yeah. it, it fills up before the famine. Yeah. It empties out after the famine, yeah, but still you have a very, very intensely populated areas. There's a thing called the Congested Districts Board, which was a, mm-hmm. a thing that the Brits brought in, we were told was Killing Home Rule Kindness, and Roundstone is one of those. So Roundstone was built by Scottish engineers. Right. Now, why? Because the idea was the Brits went into the congested districts, the districts that were congested, mm. because it was still huge, huge peasant Irish farmers there, yeah, and massive landlords. And they said, we're going to build infrastructure from these people. And this, in a way, is going to wean them off Irish nationalism because, okay. you know, we can see that the British government did this, that, and the other, right? So you see this incredibly congested district still all over Connemara, mm. all over the west coast of yeah. the country. And what struck me then was, given that the concentration of land ownership was so extraordinary, there were 900 landlords and they controlled 1.5 million acres. Wow. Right? Which was one third of the total acreage of the of Galway was controlled by 900 people. Some of them had extraordinary, extraordinary land holdings. So, for example, you know Ballinahinch Castle?
1: Yeah, beautiful, yeah.
0: Right. So Ballinahinch Castle was home to a fellow called Richard Berridge. Yeah. And as late as 1903, that's not that long ago, right? I mean, yeah. Our grandparents were probably born yeah, yeah, around yeah. then, right? yeah your man owned 160,000 acres. Wow. At that time, wow. the average income of the average Irish tenant on his land was £5 a year. So Jesus. imagine that concentration of wealth. Now, what has struck me... Not,
1: not only that, it, was, it is possibly the most beautiful place in the country
0: Yeah, for to own all of that. If you're on a horse. Not if you're digging spots. Yeah, yeah, no, you for know. sure. Yeah, yeah. But uh, absolutely, so... What interests me was how did the British government achieve the social revolution that was the transfer of land during the land acts from British or Irish, Anglo-Irish aristocracy to these peasants that had no money? Because if at the time the British landlords, all of whom were supported by the House of Lords, Mm. all of whom were related to our mates of the lords. Many of them had actually yeah. positions in the lords. They wanted compensation. They weren't going to just give up their land. Would, yeah. The Irish peasants had no money. Mm. So how did the Brits achieve this? This has always intrigued me. Yeah. Even when I was doing history in school, I thought, something wrong here,
1: right? Yeah, there seemed to be a, a kind of a jump. Yeah,
0: you know, how can you get a transfer of assets from the very rich to the very poor in a deal that suits everyone? Yeah. So how did that happen? This is what I want to talk about. It's the magic of the bond market. Ah, the old bonds. Right? And again, it's something that we don't understand or we don't appreciate, is that when you use finance and economics constructively, you can achieve amazing things. So let me, before we talk about Ireland, let me go back to the slave, because it's, it's, it's quite the opposite at the moment. Yeah. How did the Brits end the slave trade? Now, given that they started it, Right? Yeah, yeah. But how did they end it? And how they ended it was the following: they compensated all slave owners, which is extraordinary. So the British government raised a bond. Yeah. They went out and said, We are going to abolish slavery, but we are going to compensate slave owners for the confiscation of their property, which were the humans. Wow. Think about it. Yeah. And they raised a perpetual bond. And they just raised money and they gave the money to the slave owners. And they freed the slaves. Have you so any paid. idea? Have you any idea how much they paid? I have not, but we can check it. We can yeah. double check it, and we can come back to that. That's but, amazing, actually, isn't it? It's incredible. Yeah. So then, once they did this, the Brits figured out we can do the same with the Irish. Mm. We can raise a bond in order to do the following. The bond is what we will give the landlords. The landlords then have a government-backed bond which they can either cash in yeah. or they can hold on to. And what we will do is we will ask the peasants who have no money to pay between 2 and 4% interest every year. And they pay that interest. So no money changes hands. This is the fascinating thing. right? right? And the, the Irish peasants paid 2 to 4% interest in these bonds. The bonds were 70 years. They were acting for 68 years. And that was calculated because they, it meant that it would skip a generation. So what happens then? We're only paying the interest. Yes. Yeah. So the payments then went into a fund, and then that fund was dipped into to pay the annuities, biannual annuities, to the landlords. Okay. Right. So the question then is: This is quite amazing. What the Brits managed to do was they managed with, of course, the Land League and the the Irish Parliamentary Party and all those guys. You know, basically Parnell's party. Carnell and Gladstone began this process and the Land Acts then, but we don't learn how they were all financed. And they were financed by the bond market. Right. So the Brits, therefore, figured out a way of giving the Irish peasants what they wanted, which was ownership of the land. Yeah. Therefore, giving people a stake in the country, right? While at the same time, giving the landlords an exit strategy, which means they could actually leave Ireland, which they wanted to do.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And the whole idea was to promote home rule, not to promote an independent Irish Republic. But the figures are fascinating, the extent to which the land transfer. So if you look at maps of Ireland in the 1880s, you see a tiny, tiny percentage of peasant farmers, of tenants owning land. Yeah. By 1913, that has changed dramatically. And the vast majority of Irish land is owned by Irish people. Wow. And this was facilitated by the Brits issuing these long-term bonds. And this, the lesson for us now is that you can achieve enormous social reforms by using the bond markets. What the bond market does is it reduces the cost today of a massive objective tomorrow. And... When you're walking through Roundstone, you think that's what happened. It was real; it right. actually happened, and it's financial engineering in its most beautiful and constructive form.
1: Yeah, the way it should be.
0: Yeah. But hang on a second. That
1: two and a half to four percent that the peasants are are paying back in interest. Yeah. What was that in real value for them? That was easily affordable. It was easily them. affordable okay, because it's right.
0: a, it's a very low rate of interest. Yeah. Now, yeah. what's going on at the time is the gold standard. The gold standard, the late 19th century, early 20th century, was a period of very low international inflation. Right. So interest rates were very low and very stable. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is prior to that, there was no banking system in Ireland for Irish tenant farmers. Right. So this is the interesting thing, how they managed to create a financial architecture without having financial architecture. Mm. Because prior to that, John, the main money lenders in Ireland to the Irish people were grocers, right? Oh, yeah, okay. Grocers, publicans, and undertakers. That's why, you know, they down the country. Yeah. You often see sometimes the same family. It's the grocer, the undertaker, yeah. and the publican, right?
1: And up to quite recently, it was a place he'd go and he'd
0: cash your cheque as well. Precisely. Why? Because they were originally moneylenders. So right. there's great literature on Irish shadow banking before we had banks, right? Right. And and again, you know the expression, the Gombean man, Yes. So the Gambian man was hated because he was seen to be on the side of the landlords. Why is that? Which was that basically if somebody was evicted, they were likely to have been evicted at the end of a process of bankruptcy. The beginning of that process would have, they would have defaulted on the local grocer.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. Who
0: was the money lender in the village. And because the grocer's interest and the landlord's interest aligned, which was to keep the peasant farmers paying them a few quid, yeah, right? Yep. They became the Gombeen men. And in rural Ireland, you know, that still is a very loaded, loaded insult. Yeah. And they yeah. were largely grocers. And in fairness, to the poor old grocers, they went bankrupt at a much higher rate than any other class in Ireland because they were defaulted on. Yeah. Because yeah. you get a bad harvest, you're yeah. defaulted on. So all this stuff is going on. So w- at were the these time. bonds eventually paid back? Well, now that's an interesting one. So the bonds allowed massive social reform. Yeah. Then we get independence. Then we get the common and Gale government in the 1920s. That the common and Gale government in the 1920s were basically keep everything on the straight and narrow. Let's kind of be independent, but pretend we're not independent. Yeah. So we kept sterling exchange rate. We kept very, very conservative yeah, economic yeah. policies, et cetera. Then de Valera gets in, in 1932, and the first thing he does is he defaults on all these bonds. Oh, really? Yeah. So, Ireland defaulted in the 30s, very early doors, very early on, because De Valera was doing two things. One, he was trying to outflank the old IRA by being more Republican and closer to the tenant farmers than anybody else, because he eventually ended up shooting his former comrades in the IRA. Yes, yeah. And in order to position himself like that, he had to be more green than anybody else. And of course, the open sewer for Irish people was that we were still paying English landlords after having got our independence. Right. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, he yeah. said this was a strategic move on Devil's part to position himself yeah. as the Green Republican. Yeah. The problem Stick was... Up the two fingers. The problem was, of course, the Brits responded with a trade war. Go on, yeah. So think about what happened in Ireland. Ireland exported people and cattle yeah. in the 1930s, right? The Brits then responded, so, well, if you're not going to pay this, we're going to close our borders to your produce, which is what Price. they would do. Yeah. What do we export? Cattle and people. So they allowed the people to leave, but they banned Irish exports to the United Kingdom. Now, of course, Dev wow. spun this as plucky little Ireland yeah. up against the Brits, but what it caused was the precipitation of a massive, massive recession in this country, which would have happened anyway because the 1930s was recessionary, all around but, the world. But at that stage, was the UK not reliant
1: on Ireland for a lot of the kind of dairy produce and, and farm produce? Well, they could
0: source were... things in the empire, yeah. which is why New Zealand became a massive producer of butter or Australia, a massive producer of wool and sheep. Yeah, they the other side of the
1: world, though. It's, well, so that's, the cost it's, of that? It's the
0: Brexit question. Yeah, it's, We're back to the Brexit question. Yeah. No, we'll, we'll do great trade with Argentina. Yeah, Why not do trade with us? We're down the road. But anyway, so the story of these bonds is the story of two things. One is how you can achieve great things by financial engineering. And two, how it has to feel right in order for people to keep paying. So there has to be a moral background noise to economics. And if the people feel that this is right and just, they will keep doing it. But what intrigues me and what's relevant for now Mm. is how we can use the bond market to do extraordinary things because the bond market does is allows you to buy now, pay later, in effect, right? So you get the social reform now and you pay later. And intriguingly, when you're looking at the history of Galway and you're looking at what actually happened yeah. to the sons and daughters of Irish tenants who acquired land in the early part of the century, there's an amazing study done by two sociologists, economists, Hannon and Cummings, which in a granular fashion, asked the question, what tribe, what subsect of Irish society has done best from free education? Because at the time, the expectation was we brought in free education in the mid-60s. Yeah. And we would follow the British model. We'd create an urban working class who became a middle class. That was the British model. So the Brian Eno, those sort of people, all the, all the, the early 70s musicians yeah. came from the first class to go to art college. Like John Lennon, they go to art yeah. college. Yeah. They do things that their parents never did, right? Yeah, yeah. And we thought we would create that in the urban class. But actually what happened in Ireland is the most successful people in Ireland are the sons and daughters of small farmers from Galway. And in particular, East Galway. That's the data. And that's amazing. Uh, why is that? How does that, how does so that work? So what happened out? was once the small farmers got a stake in the land, right, then they had a stake. They had a toehold in the society. Yeah. When free education gets, comes in, something bizarre happens. Nobody predicted that the kids who would avail of free education and use it dramatically would be the sons and daughters. of Small farmers, not the sons and daughters of the urban working class right, basically the Dublin working class, Mm. right? What you see is the Dublin working class didn't avail of free education the same way. So what you see is they both start around the same income levels in the 1960s. By the 1980s, the sons and daughters of small farmers all around the country, but particularly in Galway, are miles ahead of everybody else. They become the sort of school teachers, civil servants in the 80s. Their kids are the doctors and lawyers, and they're the people who introduced GAA to South Dublin, right? When you go to the South Dublin GA clubs, I mean, Coola is sponsored by Davies Stockbrokers. Yeah. Right?
2: Yeah.
1: yeah, Coola GA.
0: So what you see is massive upward social progression.
1: Yeah. I'll be a croaksman myself.
0: You are a croaksman. I know you're a croaksman. But the grounding of all of this was in the innovation in the bond market at the beginning of the 20th century that allowed people to dream of owning their own plots, which they never had the money to do so, but the bond market allowed them to get that stake. And when you look at right now, John, the bond market is telling us, do it. Yeah. We can do so many things with it. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about UnitedHealthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com.
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So this is really interesting, this kind of financial engineering, but the one thing that I always hear when we're talking about ideas and what we should be doing, where we should be investing and how we should be spending
0: the money is who's going to pay for this? Somebody has to pay for it. who's it going to be? That's because you hang out with accountants. <laughs> no, but accountants live in the real-time balance sheet, profit and loss on an annual basis or assets and liabilities on an yeah. annual basis. The beauty of economics is that a lot of macroeconomics is about what they call the time value of money, which is the idea that money has a value through time right This is why. In the ancient world, the Catholic Church, all the Christian church, was very against lending and paying interest. Right. And the reason was because only God made time. And you couldn't put a price on time. That's Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, right? So it was this really very philosophical stuff about the notion of time. Who creates time? Yeah. So if you think there's a one creator, okay, that creates the future, right? The idea that some grubby little lender would be putting a price on that, saying, I'll give you 100 quid, but you've got to pay me 10% for the time value of money, yeah. right? So and that's why the church was against usury. That's why Islam is against usury. That's right. why it's not allowed in Islam to charge interest. It's called Islamic banking. You cannot charge interest. Right. So what they do is they put other charges in. Yeah, bank, yeah. Right? yeah, So what the bond market allows you to do is it allows you to project forward the actual cost of doing something enormous today. So that, that allows you to do two things. One is it allows you to create money mm-hmm. out of nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which accountants can't figure out because they don't like that, okay? Because it doesn't feel right, okay? But the second thing... Nothing becomes of nothing. Ex- Speak again, Cordelia. <laughs> Listen to you. Listen to you, right? King Lear there. King Lear. So... But once you understand that what the bond market allows you to do is, so for example, in the case we're talking about, a sixty-eight year bond, which tells the peasant farmer you don't have to pay the principal back in total until sixty-eight years, mm-hmm. you solve the problem. Yeah, because as Keynes said, in the long run, somebody totally has to pay it back. We're all though, dead. Right? Nobody has to pay back. That's the really interest. That's See, that's, that's the, the, the base. key. That's the key. That's that. what accountants don't get, and that's when you're sitting in the back of the boozer. With your mates or anyone. And it feels, how can we, so for example, let's say we wanted to build 100,000 houses today.
2: Yeah, which we do. Which we do,
0: right? And and we should build houses that should be not maybe free to people, but could only be charged an interest rate of 2%. Right. Right. At the moment, we've got this terrible charade that you've got to put up a deposit and that deposit's this and you've got to go to the bank and you've got to pay bank charges. Don't have to do any of that stuff. The right. government just raises a bond, right? Yeah, of 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, whatever size of the figure is, mm. and you create a mortgage that excludes the banks and it's a relationship between you and the government, like your tax bill, right? So you borrow for 100 years at zero yeah. percent, which we can do now, which Austria did last last, yeah. year, last week, and you build. There is no financial constraint. In the same way as when the Wyndham Land Act was going through the Parliament in England in in 1903, the discussion wasn't about who's going to pay for this. The discussion was about are we going to achieve our objective, which is social land reform in Ireland, to address Irish concerns about their own position. Right, Right. Once you begin to dream about the big things you realise that of all the obstacles that you can put up to social reform, in a world of zero interest rates, money is not one of them. And that's the key. Over the last couple of months, you've asked, could we get our academic courses, the online course, the ASMAC tutorials, CPD, i.e., could you get points for continuous professional development as part of your own career development? I'm delighted to say yes, indeed. Coming up from the 1st of September, our courses will be CPD applicable. You'll be able to get points on all the courses. We're going to give the details. Watch this space, but I think it's a really exciting development. Talk to you soon.